You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. Uh, I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Riley Quinn. Riley, could you introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Riley Quinn. I host a podcast called Trash Future, and um, and when I'm not doing that, I'm writing articles uh, for Jacobin where I hate on certain elements of pop culture, I guess. <laughs> right. So that's uh, what we're going to be talking about today. An uh, article you wrote uh, that came out uh, just a couple weeks ago. Um, the headline is Politics is Not Harry Potter. It ran in Jacobin. We'll include a link to it below. Um, I thought it was interesting. There are parts I agreed with, parts I didn't agree with. Um and I thought it was interesting enough to uh, want to talk to you about it. So I thought that maybe the starting point should be uh, what <laughs> we what is your personal relationship with the Harry Potter franchise? Are you were you a fan as a kid? Uh, do you did you never like it? What, like, how, or were you you know kind of uh, before before maybe going into like the political uh, side of it? Sure. Well, I, I wasn't that political as an eleven-year-old, um, but uh, and I did I did enjoy myself the uh, the, the first couple of, of Harry Potter books. Um, it uh, I, I sort of just I read them because they were sort of just being read. Um, I had some sort of older older so like eleven, thirteen, thirteen seems like very cool for an eleven-year-old. Like, ah, oh, there's a teen. They're reading this Harry Potter thing. I can be a teen too. I just have to get, pick up and, and get on board. Uh, and I read the first. I think three or four before I just decided that I wasn't particularly interested in continuing. Um, and there was no sort of great dramatic break for me with Harry Potter. I think I just sort of started to find it a little bit dull. Um, and I then sort of just, I, I left them off and cause I was a very pompous 12 year, uh, 12 year old at this <laughs> point. Um, I sort of demanded that my mother purchase me something very um, prestigious, like a War and Peace or whatever. Uh, it was specifically War and Peace. And I swear to God, I looked at every word and comprehended nothing. But damn, <laughs> I really felt good doing it. So you actually uh, read uh, more or less the entire all of War and Peace as a teenager? You, uh, read is a very strong <laughs> word. If I could go back in time, I would give myself such a fucking wedgie. I'm oh, sorry, can I swear on this? Yeah, go for okay. it. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I'd give myself a nuclear fucking wedgie. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I did, I would say I looked at every word. Um, in fact, the, I, I, I say there was no dramatic break. I think way one of the inciting incidents was uh, I, my mother sort of, God, I'm really going to make a terrible first impression on your audience. I promise I'm not like this anymore. Um, my mother was, uh, I was in a mall reading one of the, the HP books. Um, and my mother sort of saw another of the, the mothers uh, of our, our area in this mall. Uh, and the, and the, the mother in question said, uh, ah, you see your son's reading Harry Potter. It's great. It, it's getting kids who don't read into reading. And I was like, well, hang on a sec. That's not me. Um, again, very, very pompous 12 year old. I fortunately hope I kicked it. <laughs> um, and so it was, it was that thing where it's like, well, it's a bit pop and so on. Um, I later did actually watch all the films, um, with someone I was dating and, um, cause she was quite a, quite a fan and I really didn't give it much thought, um, for quite a while. They, they were, they were all right films, you know, relatively good action basically you know 
Um, and then Harry Potter didn't really enter back into my consciousness until sort of 2016, the year that sort of politics came back. Um, and what was it? It was always there, obviously, but that for the great majority of people who thought they were living in a post-political world, politics came back with, in my case, because I live in the UK, the Brexit referendum, um, and, and US's case, you know, Trump and all this, all this stuff. Uh, I really only started thinking about Harry Potter again when it became this cipher that I think a lot of young, younger, uh, and it's like millennial to Gen X could say, um, sort of liberals, um, were using as their political cipher. It was, it was the lens through which they seemed to start understanding politics. You see sort of protest signs popping up all over the place saying Corbin is not Dumbledore as though that's important. Um, and so I, I wanted to think a little bit more about this. Why, what was it that makes it Harry Potter so compelling for them? What makes it rather than say Lord of the Rings or, um, even a game of Thrones or whatever, what makes it the thing? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, um, that's interesting. I think just for, for myself, I was, I was too old to get into it the, in the initial round that it came out. Um, I think 98 was when the first book was published in the U S and I would have, would have been 15 then. Um, but my brother who was eight or nine then, um, got into it very intensely and he was not like a never read a book kind of kid, but he definitely wasn't reading like other books of that length as an eight year old. Um, and so he was, he was a huge fan. And then I read the first one because he was so excited about it and was kind of like, I don't really get it. This isn't for me. Um, I saw the movies, most of them as they came out in theaters, um, sometimes with my family or, or uh, sometimes just like seeing it on DVD. Um, yeah, the movies are uh, uneven. There's one of them is directed by Alfonso Cuarón. Uh, that's the best one. <laughs> and some of the other, and the first couple ones are really crappy. But I went back or, as a after um, graduating from college around 2007 or so. I went back and read them all. Uh, getting them out from the library. And I mean, they were compelling enough for me to keep reading each one. And as everyone knows, they're very long. Um, but I was never like a Harry Potter stan or a, mm. <laughs> a person who identified which um, house in um, Hogwarts I, I, w- I would be in or anything like that. But I did like, <laughs> I could k- kind of enjoy them. Um, and yeah, I didn't really like beyond the movies. I didn't really, like really think about them that much uh, after, after that point. Um, but yeah, it is, I mean, I, I can't, it's the most popular, like fictional, like work of fiction of our era, I would have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely if we're, if we're just looking at actual books, it has to be by far the most, the most popular. And if we're looking at like intellectual property, you know, maybe it competes with like Star Wars, but it mm-hmm. is one of the, like two, <laughs> one, two or three defining, uh, cultural texts of our era. So I think it it is important to look at it and think about it critically and think about why so many people uh, love it so much. So what, what is your answer as to why, why people are still, you know, thinking about Harry Potter and saying that they belong to Gryffindor in their Twitter profile or wearing a pin or something (laughs) and thinking about Trump being Voldemort? Why, why, why is this? Uh, I just, you got, you, you hate to see that Trump Voldemort stuff. Um, well, I think that like any, like any good social sciences phenomenon, there are probably 30 different equally correct answers to that question. 
Um, the way I think about it is I, I think that, number one, um, there is a strong desire and the part of the – so you might say like the, the post-political uh, liberal order. And these are people who are like, you know, might be uh, in the UK would probably be voting, you know, Lib Dem or maybe even Labor Right would be sort of probably around my age, late 20s, um, and would probably – and, and grew up sort of in initially in the era of the of the end of history, you know, in the 90s and the unipolar moment when everything seems sort of quite settled. And I think there is a strong desire to um, return to a sense of childhood um, because this now because the return of politics, these these things becoming questioned, the return of agonism, um, it makes life much riskier. Um, it's not, there's, it, it's economic growth is not merely settled anymore. It's now very contested. Will it be there? Who will it be for? Uh, and these things are not questions you can decide with sort of a, an expert consulting a chart. It's actually about who gets what in society. So these are quite exciting, but very dangerous times to people who sort of grew up in a very cosseted era. And I think that this is one of the reasons, in fact, that I think a lot of the major cities, big financial hubs are turning into just these garish neon playgrounds for, you know, board management consultants, uh, where there are ball pit bars and, uh, you know, a, a cereal cafe or whatever, where everything's trying to make you a kid. And I think the desire to, to go back to that simpler era, the desire to be a child again, is a, a very, a, I think it appeals to certain elements of the liberal worldview who just want things taken care of so they can focus on their bit. Um, and that sort of leads me into the second, more content related thing, which is I think that the Harry Potter world is a deeply neoliberal one, uh, especially in the way that it imagines its own laws of nature. Because um, I was one of the things that got me thinking about this was thinking about because the, England has always been obsessed with magic culturally. Um, well, it comes and goes, but the last time we were this obsessed with magic was the, like the late Victorian era, where there was this huge surge of interest in the occult. But if you compare the magic of Harry Potter which is basically just literally academic. It's just studying. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a world in which the better you do at school, the more power you have over the literal laws of physics, um, where the, these principles of, of, of meritocracy, of a kind of, um, of a benevolent administrative state, of um, sort of quite fixed social orders that are outside the realm of control, um, where, those are just, where those are given... And those are immutable. I think those are quite comfortable fantasies. Compare that to Victorian, the way the Victorians thought about the occult. Um, and you could especially see this in the way that their, that their empire was, was structured sort of as such an overt jingoistic killing machine. Um, they saw the occult as dangerous and, 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 and it was a big chance you took. You were sort of either making a deal with the devil or you'd have to sacrifice blood magic or whatever. Like you just have to look at half of the Sherlock Holmes stories and it's about, Sherlock investigating what appears to be a uh, like Lord Blackwood, um, a, a, an aristocrat with with mysterious powers given to him by the devil, and there was this sense of sort of real um, sort of danger and sacrifice in 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 the practice of magic for the Victorians that for the Harry, Harry Potter is reduced to mere getting good grades, and so it's wouldn't it be lovely to retreat to a childhood fantasy where by the way everything you were told about how your life is going to go, which is if you get good grades, you can bend the laws of physics in a neoliberal economy um, or good grades from a good school. Um, why wouldn't you go back to that? Why wouldn't you specifically retreat there 
because that's the world that makes sense to you. And you can see it, this ludicrous nostalgia, not ludicrous, but insane nostalgia. It's not ludicrous for them. I mean, I think it's stupid, but at least it's connected to some A-B reasoning. Um, and their protest signs. It was the, uh, if Hillary won, we'd be at brunch right now. Or, um, uh, well, I saw one at an anti-Brexit protest that said, um, we refuse to stop protesting until things go back to normal. As though really what they want is to hit a big backwards button to where this was an accurate description of the world. Because Harry Potter, as it was written, reflected the neoliberal world of which J.K. Rowling was, for most of her life, certainly getting the short end of the stick. So a single mother in Scotland on sort of constantly sanctioned benefits who sort of was always teetering on the edge of poverty. Okay, so there's a lot there. Um, and maybe, maybe we can go, go through it kind of uh, point by point, more or less. So I think the um, nostalgia for childhood, I think that's very accurate. I mean, you see it um, – you see it everywhere. You see it. I see it in my own life. I wear a baseball hat that has the Autobot symbol on it because I really liked Transformers when I was a kid. Um, and, you know, uh, adults, yeah, adults collecting toys, uh, cosplay, uh, you know, wa- watching Game of Thrones, which is a completely fantastical show about dragons and ice zombies uh, and is, like, the most popular show on TV right now. Yeah, so a lot of, like, childish things have stayed with the – stayed with the culture and stayed with uh, the millennial generation. Like, why is this? Um, part of it is some sort of economically arrested development, I would say, where uh, it was easier for our parents and grandparents' generations to uh, find a mate and find a job that would pay enough so that they could uh, support themselves and buy a house and be like, you know, live like adults instead of like adulting, which is what some people say, you know, they feel like when they like pay all their bills, they're like, man, I was really adulting today. So it's like, it's like we feel a lot of people in our generation feel like we're imposters and we're not, we're not adults. We're like, you know, still little kids. Um, so I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Damn, I'm a god at this bullshit. <laughs> so, okay. But then, you know, nostalgia for childhood, I think is probably a universal, a universal element of human society since we like recognize mm-hmm. childhood as part of it. I mean, um, Trump's slogan was make America great again. What did that mean? Uh, the best I could come up with was make it like a 1950s childhood. Uh, and that, that's the like halcyon days that a lot of white conservatives long for is like that, you know, mythical, <laughs> mythical era of like father, father knows best. And Trump mm. is kind of like they all want to leave their doors unlocked. They're desperate to leave their doors unlocked. <laughs> They're just gagging for it. So yeah, so I think that and that kind of nostalgia. So that kind of nostalgia is I don't know if it's apolitical, but like it, it, it doesn't like line up with with one side or another. I would say I don't know what era like uh, young conservatives are nostalgic for. Maybe it's like the Reagan era or something. Um, <laughs> young conservatives are nostalgic for the Roman Empire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're nostalgic for before, like, the um, tribes of Europe started, like, inter inter. <laughs> um, and they're, Ra- they're nostalgic and the- for a time when all the statues from their avatars were real people. <laughs> the all young conservative, every single young conservative has, like, a Cicero trading card. Um, okay, so, uh, yeah, I think that's... That like, but there does seem, but like, I, my my parents were not like collecting the action figures of their childhood, you know, in the way that a lot of people um, collect the action figures of my childhood. Um, so so something has changed there, and I. But then it's like, what? Why Harry Potter specifically? I mean, I think the the genius of the books, I think, is this idea that um, it's about 
it's 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 making the ch- the child who's reading it feel like they're special, and that they yeah. have this special ability that is going to pluck them from their everyday lives, and they're going to go off to this incredible place. And you know, people, your, your, your Hogwarts letter is always arriving. It's just my my letter. brother. I don't know whether I think it's just it's either like when you turn eleven or twelve, but like my brother mm-hmm. was. I don't know how serious he was, but at least part of him was seriously waiting for his Hogwarts letter or whatever the American equivalent of Hogwarts was to come to him when he turned 11 so that he could go <laughs> live and be a wizard because, um, like, that's how, that's how powerful the, the fantasy only, is. The only Hogwarts letter um, anyone ever actually received was <laughs> was a dick pic with an STI. Damn, too bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the things we get sent unsolicited turned out to be slightly uh, slightly worse than... <laughs> The, the Hogwarts uh, Anthony letter. Wiener, I was hoping it was Hogwarts. Um, yeah, so I think that that is, you know, this idea that, like, every child wants to be told that, like, there's something special about them, they're not the same as the other ones, and, like, having this, uh, like, this idea of, like, having a special destiny is also, you know, gets to, like, the uh, hero's story or whatever from Joseph Campbell, and there does seem to be, like, this, uh, you know, like, Luke Skywalker had a a special identity and was plucked from obscurity to, and so did King Arthur and blah, blah. Um, so there's that. And then the fact that it seemed to take place in like the real world, but also there was this whole fantastical world within it. It was different from Lord of the Rings, which took place in a totally like uh, fantastical mythical world. Um, so that was like a clever, <laughs> clever part of J.K. Rowling's uh, idea is that, she, she plagiarized the world, damn it. Well, she, she combined some aspect of realism with with fantasy. It wasn't, you know, you could, like, uh, I don't know if you've ever, have you ever been to that place in St. Patrick, what was it called, St. Pancras or something? The St. Pancras, oh, fuck me, yeah. So, yeah, if you go to, like, you can, oh, you can go to, it's, like, nine, you know, track nine three quarters and, like, you know, the take most, a photo. I'll tell you, like, what they do is there's a big queue. And you can queue up, and they give you a scarf from where your whichever house you got sorted into, which is fun. Uh, and then uh, what they'll do is you hold a a baggage cart that is built into the wall, and then um, someone takes a photo of you while another attendant holds the scarf back so it looks like you're running. <laughs> it genuine. It I I was looking at that, and I was looking at the train tracks. I was like, I could just go on them. I could I could just make a dive for the train drive. Okay, right so now. you so if, if I was like nine years old and I was really into Harry Potter and my family was traveling to London, I would like want to do this as like the coolest thing ever. But it's not um, nine year olds. It's, it's yeah, not nine year olds. It's twenty five year olds. Yeah, so it's, it's fucking adults. Why are they? Yeah, so why are they still doing this? Um, and then okay, so then how does this like connect to, to the politics? I think. Yeah, there's there's lots of people who paid glancing attention to politics, and that's the majority of people because the majority of people are not uh, politically aware. It, you know, they know who the president is, but they probably couldn't name more than two cabinet uh, secretaries, and they have things going on in their life that that you know meet that don't require them to pay attention to politics. Maybe maybe the socialists would say they should. You know, these things are a false consciousness mm-hmm. or something. But like they have they have to get their kids from daycare and get a meal on the table. So they're not like paying close attention. And like a lot of people want to, yeah, just return to that point where they feel like I don't have to worry about, you know, the, the world falling yeah. apart because of Brexit or Donald Trump. So I think that's, well, I think that's an yeah. understandable reaction from like a normie type who, <laughs> who isn't, you know, wants to just go on with their lives and pay attention to TV and sports and their family relationships and their work and doesn't want to think about, 
Donald J. Trump every single day. So like, yeah, returning to the Denic <laughs> 2016, even yeah. though it wasn't that Edenic, but in our minds, it was like, oh, what a simple time. Um, I think that yeah. is very natural, very natural as well. Um, and then, yeah, so like, is Harry Potter, or sorry, is, uh, is Donald Trump Voldemort? Is, uh, Theresa May Voldemort? Or, I guess Theresa May is often compared to like a, a different female yeah. character from, from well, the novels. You know what it is? The reason I think I, susp- I specifically um, think that this is again a particularly liberal um, phenomenon, it, well, it twofold. Number one, you mentioned earlier about having a special destiny, and well, yeah, that's actually a relatively common trope. Uh, but in the case of like Luke Skywalker, your special destiny is that you are uniquely powered to like lead a certain rebellion. Um, and 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 you know, and um, Achilles, you know, you are you've been made into this unto a god by getting dipped in the river sticks, whatever. In Harry Potter, your special destiny is getting into a good school. Like that's your super. That's you. You have been picked out. You have been plucked from the unwashed Muggle masses who don't have your superpower, and you've been put into a good school. Uh, where you're going to learn how to be like a uh, brain god, you know? Um, and so realistically, like what that is, and that's I think, a deeply neoliberal fantasy is the one of, oh yeah, there was the, the kid in the ghetto, but then he got a scholarship and went to Harvard. He was the special one picked from the crowd of the unspecial. And that sort of level of personalization of everything, that sort of willful, when, when someone says um, Donald, J- Donald Trump um, is, uh, is literally Voldemort, or whatever, what they're doing is they are framing their politics in such a way that, you know, initially, look, I'm not, I don't, I'm, the worst thing a socialist can be is a scold. To be like, hey, if you're having fun with your politics, don't you dare have fun with your politics. Stop comparing people to, um, to, to, to literary figures, whatever. I do it all the time. I think of most American, um, conservative, uh, cabinet, uh, cabinet members or secretaries of state as basically just different versions of Laurel and Hardy. Um, but, I I see what I see with this is it's their way of communicating that um, Donald Trump is the personification of evil who has brought about these divisions in American society, where it's like Donald Trump cast a spell to make the American public racist in 2016, more or less. And I think that these the compare the, the sort of the the repetition over and over again that talking about how he's Voldemort. It's not talking about how he's Voldemort as bad. Give a shit. It's a made up guy and he's a, he's a senile toddler. But the, I think what it, it's almost, it's a little sort of hint. It's the tip of an iceberg that, that shows a kind of liberal theory of politics where a lot of the young people are supposed to be the sort of, let's say, you know, the, the, the new world is crying out to be born, but it can't. They're supposed to be the midwives of it. They see the world in this very liberal sense where they don't, they don't sort of attempt to look beyond Trump or they don't intend to look beyond Brexit or whatever to understand that like these are structural problems with structural causes. Like, it's a way it's by, by sort of turn, by, by retreating into a much simpler explanation um, and by using, just using Harry Potter as the lens for that simpler explanation. Like they could have used anything. I have no Harry Potter. It's just, this is what they have chosen as the symbol for their, their their simplified cartoonish view of the world. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Go ahead. So I think you know th- there's there's different possible like political readings of the novels. One of one is uh, what you've presented um, as it being kind of neoliberal. I mean, another is that it's really more like aristocratic because I mean, there's this whole thing about like the purebred 
you know, magicians or whatever, wizards uh, versus the mudbloods who are like mixed race or the muggles who are purely human. And then like, it's not like the, um, it's not exactly like, you know, the child from the ghetto who got like a scholarship to Harvard because like the child, that child like worked really hard in high school or whatever. Whereas uh, the, the children who are picked for Hogwarts are just, are just like plucked. And, and they just seem mm-hmm. to have like some essence within them that means that they have like the spark of, of, of magic within them. So it's like, because but that's of, a neoliberal assumption. Well, I think it's more it's of a neoliberal an aristocratic assumption. It's like, it's like they are, um, you know, some of them like descend from generations of wizards and some of them just by, it's like by accident or birth. I mean, it's, it's kind of more akin to like being like, uh, born like, uh, really, really tall. So you can go play in the NBA. Um, like they didn't, you know, they didn't do anything to, 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 to um, deserve that uh, reward, reward exactly. But um, yeah, there, it's, it's like he, like, so Harry is like the most powerful wizard ever, except for Voldemort or something. Forgive me any Harry Potter fans out there if I'm messing up the, exactly how it goes. But, like, They're not watching anymore. <laughs> <laughs> they turned this off a while ago. That might be, yeah. Like, okay. Maybe only the Harry Potter, <laughs> Harry Potter haters are still with us. Um, but yeah, so he like like defeated Voldemort. So <laughs> he, de- he defeated Voldemort when he was a baby. Like that's how good of a wizard he is. Like nothing, you know, it was nothing really to do with his <laughs> his ability. It's just like he had somehow this super magical power mm-hmm. within him, and um, uh, but that you know leads to the tragic death of his parents, and he's uh, you know raised not knowing that he's he has this ability. Um, yeah, so it's like, you know, it's it's like the. I don't know, ma- you know, magical child who has been crowned or something, and this, like, he's the one who shall lead yeah. us um, close. I think it's more like that than the, you know, yeah. like the striving, um, you know, striving uh, child from a poor neighborhood or the like uh, high school student who is always like studying all the time and doing lots of extracurriculars so they can get get into a good college. The other thing I, I would just note, and I I sent your article to a friend of mine who's a Harry Potter fan. He noted that. Mm-hmm. Um, Harry and Ron are not good students. Um, Hermione is a good student and is always working really hard. But it's it's more like they're good people, not that they're good students. And I think they're I mean they presented their children presented as pretty much one dimensional characters. But you know they try to do the right thing. They often get into you know scrapes and, and mishaps and misadventures. Uh, but they always like you know end up getting like the hundred points for Gryffindor that enables them to win the uh, cup <laughs> at the at the end of the year. Um, but it's not, it's like they're always, like, messing up their spells and stuff. Um, so it's it's not like they are, like, you know, like, grind... Like, we used to call them grinders in high school, like people who are <laughs> studying all the time. Um, but they're still, like, presented as as the heroes, or two of the three main heroes of, of the series. Well, I think it's less... Lit- I think my, my interpretation of it is slightly less literal than that. But first, I just want, want to say sort of why I consider it to be more neoliberal than aristocratic, why, of that particular fantasy, um, is because if you look at neoliberal justifications for um, any kind of redistribution, it tends to be on the basis that, well, if we don't say, if you don't have some level of redistribution to, say, poorer areas, there are sort of these secret geniuses. They always say, oh, the next Einstein might be enabled to go to university because of this redistributive program, and that's going to grow the economy and so on. It's never a talk of fundamental rights, but it, I think neoliberalism does. It, one of its myths is that there are groups of very special people out there who are all, you know, going to be the next Elon Musk or whatever, and that and that they have that magical power, that they have that whatever genius that is, 
um, that is that it, it sort of sets the sort of the laws of our society going. Now I say the laws, I mean more not the actual legislation, but that it power it powers forward movement. So that's and so you'd be like, ah, it's it's the same thing as the um uh, as you know um you know Joe Kennedy standing up and you know speaking Spanish to the Dreamers who all spoke English, which was a hilarious gap, uh, and being like, we want you because of you might be geniuses who'll grow our economy. There's never a talk of sort of universal fundamental rights. It's that there are these hidden hidden things we can exploit locked away in people, and so that's why I think it's a, it's a sort of neoliberal fantasy. And secondly. I think I look. I take your point about um, Harry and Ron not being good students. And again, I'm not going to lie to you. I've <laughs> I've not read the entire series because um, I really didn't want to. I didn't want to put myself through that. It gets <laughs> if you've seen the you've seen the movies. I mean, it gets pretty dark like, yeah. for what started as a kid, I, as a kid series. Then I decided to, to to write an article about it because I'm a big shithead. Um, but I, I, the other thing I think to remember is like there's two there's two ways to read it. And I don't and I think you have to remember that what we're talking about is People, people constructing their political, like, I don't know, almost like a political ontology of what is by first imagining this, this fantasy that they're in. So I don't think they think that they're Harry and Ron. I don't think it's literally saying, well, no, you have to be this good of a student to succeed or whatever. I think what it is, is it is an easy fantasy to slip into where you are going to learn a bunch of, of, of spells or you go to Harvard and you learn a bunch of graphs that are going to make the economy grow. Right. <laughs> um, or you go to Hogwarts and you learn to say something that will, you know, magically make food appear, even though there still is a class system for some reason. We'll get into that later, maybe. But um, I think that it's, it's a mistake to read it as this is the literal story that is the same story as neoliberalism. No, I don't think it is. I think that this story, the world that she has built and I grant her, like she's, brilliant at building a world that feels compelling to a lot of people, right? There's a, you know, hundreds of millions of pieces of evidence of that in her bank account. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, they're, they're literally building yeah. that world as a theme park. Like, has that ever happened yeah. before that a book became like a theme park? It's crazy. <laughs> uh, Jurassic Park, but that was in the fictive world of the novel. So <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that was more a book, a book about a theme park. Uh, anyway, but what I, that was, that, that's what I mean when I say it's a neoliberal fantasy. I don't mean the story itself is a neoliberal fantasy. I'm saying that when the reader imagines themselves inserted into that story, because that's the purpose it functions for a lot of people, then it is one where fundamentally neoliberal assumptions about the world hold true. Um, and I think we also talked earlier about, oh, well, Harry and Harry and, and Ron and Small, they win because they're good people. I think Harry Potter is, if not patient zero, then certainly patient early number of the, um, of the, of this, uh, of just sort of infecting our culture with the with the virus of um, of sort of, of this of the whole um, love is more powerful than any force um, uh, trope. You know, it's uh, it's it's it, it has reinvigorated that particular you know annoying story cop out because <laughs> it basically just because it means like when they're trying to, it, it means they can say well are the power of our friendship will see us over this. And you can, and again, you can see that delusion playing out in every, you know, Trump and Brexit protest where people go out and convinced of the force of their own, of their own righteousness and the power of their friendship and their what have you, that, uh, they are essentially going to be able to affect change without ever thinking about the word organizing, without understanding, without attempting to say convince anybody else, without doing anything but sort of just being sort of sort of just nebulously righteous and nice 
I think they're, they're one of the real sort of one of the real sort of things that Harry Potter does is it is it is it substitutes um, niceness for for goodness. Like, there's a, there's a lot of um, be be polite, be honest, be friendly, and then good things just sort of happen. You know, there's and they, here's the other thing. I don't think that every book needs to be Marxist. Far from it. I don't. I don't resent this, this this book for not being Marxist. I don't even resent it for take. I don't resent it really at all. I don't say that it shouldn't tell this story. But what I'm trying to get to the bottom of is this story, in the way that it was told, has clearly had a profoundly powerful political impact on the way a lot of people see the world. Um, and that I'm sort of trying to trace why that is and why it deserves criticism. If it didn't have this pow- pow- profound and powerful impact, I wouldn't be here banging on about how sort of the civility virus, um, at least in people of my age, um, was sort of spawned in no small part from everybody's obsession with Harry Potter. So that's almost that's a point I want to keep making so I don't seem like I'm just a socialist that hates on pop culture. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned something uh, about, you know, people thinking, like, we just have to defeat Trump, and then, like, we you know, we can go back to our old lives. Um, so it reminded me of uh, Lord of the Rings, the finale of Lord of the Rings. Uh, Frodo drops the uh, the ring, or, you know, Gollum bites his finger off and falls into um, the crack of doom, and, um, like, that instant, everything starts crumbling in Mordor, and if and in the movie version, it's almost like the uh, <laughs> the the evil orcs and stuff just kind of, like, shuffle off screen, and then they're, like, gone. Yeah. And so, you know, that's a true fantasy of we just need to do this one thing, defeat this one guy, and then we'll all, we'll all be good. Um, I, so it's a little different in Harry Potter. There's like this kind of psychic battle between Harry and Voldemort. Oh, he turns into a baby. I don't exactly remember how it goes. But I think it, that at least is a uh, – Lord of the Rings is a very simplistic, you know, fairy tale-like yeah. ending of, you know, Frodo and Sam go back home again. Um, and like, you know, in – in Harry Potter, like, as far as I remember, like, the evil house at Hogwarts Slytherin, like, is still there, and a lot, of, and, and, and some of the evil people, like, they, they don't shrivel away, like, in Lord of the Rings, so, it, it, you, and there's also this whole, like, bureaucratic government angle to some of the books of, you know, like, the Ministry of Magic getting taken over by the, by the evil people, so that's maybe somewhat more, uh, apt analogy for the situation we might, in America, face uh, when and if Donald Trump ever leaves the Oval Office, uh, it will happen at some point, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's like it's like <laughs> yeah, can we can be replaced by President Barron? <laughs> can we go back? Can we? Well, I think Ivanka uh, uh, would would uh, go first. Uh, like, can no, she's we be too busy at the World Bank, dude? <laughs> can we? Can we go back again? Is you know, is America's innocence uh, lost forever? Um, I, I think there are people in the resistance who are just like. Uh, you know, thinking like we defeat Trump and then it's done, and then the evil ring has been melted yeah. down and it can't happen again. Like, no, like he's done irreparable harm to the country, and all the people who voted for him, uh, or the vast majority of them, will still be around for four, eight, two or six years from now, and uh, we have to deal with the disagreements uh, with those people <laughs> that uh, Trump's election brought to the fore. So, yeah, you don't. You to know, be fair, a lot of them are going to give themselves like you know hardened arteries because they consu- they now consume diets of like all frozen meat. Yeah, well, okay, so, so so you know maybe QAnon will turn into like a suicide cult or something. Um, <laughs> it's unclear how many people actually believe in that. Uh, so yeah, so I don't know like. 
I don't know if there must be some like fantasy or sci-fi series that, that like deals with what happens after the big bad guy is defeated. I can't immediately think of, think of one, but I'm sure it exists. And that's like a much more complicated, Dune. less fun story. Probably. I think Dune. I, yeah. I've never read Dune or, or seen the movie. Oh, so Dune, that is Dune a... rocks. <laughs> Dune, Dune rules. I love it. I, I love everything about it. Um, the latter books, like the, because the, the the book is – I've read it multiple times. So the, the first book is about um, a power struggle over a, a planet that's sort of a, a, a sort of a cipher for the Middle East um, where it has the, the spice, which is this substance that makes interplanetary navigation possible. It's sort of a, a, a metaphor for oil. It's quite obvious in that sense. But it is about the sort of complex interplay of belief, environment, um, uh, the, the great, great, powerful figures. I mean, the the main character, um, Paul Atreides, is himself sort of a specially chosen um, instrument of fate. All this, like, it has many of those same fantasy tropes. But when Paul Atreides, at, at, when Paul Atreides at the end, spoiler alert for Dune, a forty-year-old <laughs> book, um, when he takes power of the sort of galactic empire um, away from the the, the current the current set up system. It, then the next books go into the sort of the, the corruption and the fall of, of Paul, the sort of failure of his golden plan for all of humanity, et cetera, et cetera. I think that that's a very interesting book about the realities and interplays of power. Now, again, is it a Marxist book? No, obviously there are, there aren't a lot of those. Um, China China Mieville, um, who wrote uh, who writes tons of stuff, um, and he also recently wrote a very good book about the history of the October Revolution. Um, on Verso, uh, he wrote a book called Perdido Street Station, which is a sort of yeah, I've read that. Low- yeah, so that's and like so that's a, a novel that I think is is much more about sort of the perva- pervasive and deep deep seated sort of corruptions and difficulties and the sort of the actual like you know world of of, of struggle that um, I think that had let's say alternate universe in which more people were raised on that. There would be much more class consciousness and much less. Um, let's get rid of the big bad guy so that things can go back to normal. Because, like the, the because the, what that does is it makes the system it makes the system feel natural, right? It's so you uh, you're familiar with capitalist realism by Mark Fisher, I imagine. Um, I've heard of it, but don't really know anything about it. Okay, so if you this is the this is basically. The sort of, if you like, the, the framework underneath what I think about the relationship between um, culture and uh, capital. Um, and it's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant book. It's like 96 pages long. You can get it on, I think, zero. Um, a strong, strong recommendation. And what Mark Fisher is writing about is he is sort of trying to explore the idea through looking at culture of why um, it feels like it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. To take that, Zizek. I think it was Zizek. Um, quote. And so what he's looking at is how the, uh, how the, uh, how that, that capitalist realism as a kind of literary trope is this deflationary perspective that sort of keeps you from imagining anything outside the bounds and the assumptions of capital. So he, one of the films he talks about is, um, Children of Men. Oh, where, which is also by Quaron. Yeah. Um, that's one of my favorite films. Yeah. And so he talks about how like the the how it's um a it, it's this 
it's this film that's sort of bound in by that with with capital capitalist assumptions where not the film itself of course but the world it portrays mm-hmm. is one where sort of where art art as reduced to a sort of commodity is sort of looked at by the idle rich hold up in their you know sort of self self-made prisons as they hide from the rest of the world that the the state has been rolled back to the point where it is you know merely just an army that's sort of you know terrorizing you as much as protecting you and so on and so he's is looking at this. This is a vision, a capitalist vision of the end of the world, where we have still we we have a vision of the end of the world, but we have held on to these things about private property and militarism and the rollback of society. Um, and it's and so when I think of Harry Potter in terms of capitalist realism, um, what I think of as uh, the class system, for example, they have a, a post scarcity economy. It's a book where you can literally make stuff appear. And yet there are still money, banking, and social classes. There's still slavery. Um, there are, there is, there is still this endless, desperate desire to rent, to rank everyone and sort of dole them out little bits and bobs and rewards based on how well they perform in certain tests and where they fit on this stratum and how much money you have. And oh, by the way, Harry, you're also secretly rich. Um, it, and it's the, the fact that we have imagined a post-scarcity world that still assumes that all of these assumptions that actually come from scarcity are just natural. And so when we met, when that's why I think like when all of these, you know, Harry Potter protest signs like, Oh, Trump would be a Slytherin or whatever. <laughs> it really is showing a failure of imagination is that Harry Potter has given, has infected a ton of liberal young people or millennials now, not necessarily all young people, but you know what I mean? It's infected them with this fundamentally deflationary perspective. It has given them a dose of capitalist realism in the form of this deeply, deeply conservative, um, faux progressive worldview. Because that's the other problem uh, thing about so that, about about Harry Potter, right? Is that they're saying is that you said earlier that you thought it was a sort of an aristocratic thing, where where you have all oh, the pure bloods, etc. I mean. I think it's a very obvious metaphor for the fight between liberal democracy, such as it was, and fascism in the 40s. And she's talking about how you beat you beat fascism with sort of bland, non-materialized social liberalism, like saying, um, you know, je suis mudblood or fucking whatever. <laughs> and then by being by hanging out with your friends, going to protests uh, and studying hard. That's essentially the liberal plan to defeat fascism is we have a fact deficit. You know, we need to tactically insert facts around the countries so that, that, that the natural processes of people deciding what's right and what's the, the fake news or whatever will work themselves out. Um, and that it has fundamentally, I think, been instrumental in closing them off to the idea that it's, it's not that we need to fight the bad man to go back to how things were. It's that it's that it's closed them off to the idea that there are some things that everything is mutable. It's, it says, no, there, the magic you can do is the magic you learn. There will always be poor people because poorness is a thing that people choose to be or poor people are somehow necessary for a society to run. Uh, even without scarcity, we're still, some people will still have less for whatever fucking reason. Um, and that these, these assumptions, as we re- come into contact with them again and again, and as we organize our thought around them, um, they close off what we imagine to be possible. And so that's, I think, the capitalist realism perspective. Yeah, that's interesting. I'll have to, I'll have to uh, check out that book. Um, you know, so the only, I guess the only thing I 
<laughs> I remember uh, knowing about Dune besides like the stuff about Spice and that there was a weird David Lynch movie. Was that was a lot of people saying David Lynch um, movie rules? It's saying, so good. <laughs> they were saying like, oh, the first book is really really good, and then it like goes downhill after there. It's so, not, no, 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 it does, it does. So it's uh, like, like it's, I, it's, I think it's, well, it's, it, you know, in storytelling, uh, like how you know, how do you end like? What what is the end? You know, in Shakespeare, they all ended with either everyone dying or everyone getting married. Um, so it's like those those the only possible uh, endings four hundred years ago. And then yeah, do like you know, I can kind of see why people don't want to read about like the boring, uh, you know, the boringest of like going along in your everyday life um, in on Spice World because like we're going along in our everyday lives here. We want to read something fun to distract ourselves. Um, yeah. Have you? Not saying we shouldn't do that. <laughs> we should do that. It's just this particular one has kind of a problem. Have you? Are you familiar with the the Magicians series by Lev Grossman? No, I'm not. Uh, they're really good, and I would recommend them to people. Um, it, it's basically like Harry Potter for grownups. What it, it, a much more realistic version of like a, a school for magic, and people you know are plucked to go to it, and it's more like graduate school. And like they have sex, and they like suffer ennui, and like so unlike graduates. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a t- there's a TV show version of it now where all the people are very good looking. Um, but the- I saw a couple episodes of one. Of but anyway, check school. out the first one. Just called the magicians. But yeah, it's also like what do you do? So in the first book is kind of him like learning how to become a magician, and then towards the end he's kind of like. Uh, what do like? What do you do? Like, he, like he's a magician. He goes back into the real world. Like, what can he do when he could like do anything? And he basically just becomes really, really bored. Um, I guess so. I guess there's a question like why the why magicians don't just like create food for everyone who needs food and like clothing and ha- housing and so forth. Um, maybe because that wouldn't be a good story. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, in Star Trek, once they get get like the replicator thing that can create anything, like they go off into outer space to go um, talk to aliens and stuff because they're mm-hmm. like they solved all the all the problems on Earth and they still need something to do with their time. Um, so let's maybe we can close out by talking about um, uh, the woman herself who created this universe, uh, J.K. Rowling, and how just, just one of the worst one of the worst posters on Twitter, honestly. Yeah, how like what <laughs> is going on with J- with J.K. Rowling? Like, so she really doesn't like the labor party under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, surprising it, that, and uh, surprising that a magnificently rich person would okay, like the labor yeah, party. So under is, it, is it simply that, yeah, she has like billions and billions of dollars from selling all these silly books. And of course she doesn't want someone who's going to raise your taxes. Like, like, okay, that, that makes sense to me. Um, is there, is there more to it than that? Why? And do you, has, is this like having an effect yeah. on all the Harry Potter fans in the UK who, <laughs> who might otherwise like look at Jeremy Corbyn? They're like, well, if, J.K. Rowling doesn't. Um, I think I, I, I think um, I think what okay. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, I think that uh, J.K. Rowling came up in the era of Blair when the Labor Party basically said we are okay with anyone getting filthy rich. So the Labor Party sort of be, when when Blair took over became the left wing of capital, which it, it historically hadn't been. But then Thatcher kind of broke everything. And then it seemed like there was no alternative. Um, obviously, we know there was. Um, and so she came up in an era where um, where Blair and Clinton had basically made their brand of third wayism sort of extremely cool. And it looked as though that was going to be the thing. It was it was a, just as I think her books give a lot of people who are in their mid to late 20s nostalgia for the 1990s. I think she fundamentally has nostalgia for the 1990s when being on the left was basically easy because you weren't really on the left. 
you were just the left wing of capital. You were capitalism with a smiley face. And so I think for her, I think it is, number one, it is this sort of an image politics where it, like, personally, I wouldn't mind if like a predictably algorithmically generated T-shirt was the prime minister, so long as written on it were the good, right policies. <laughs> Whereas for them, it has to be, no, they have to be young and cool and Beto O'Rourke and Justin Trudeau and... They have to be, you know, woke bay with NATO socks or whatever, um, and they have to res- and they have to resist all of these sort of icky illiberal things that I don't like. And so for her, I think she is one of the people who was who, whose brain was fundamentally broken by Brexit, where um, the, so the the simple fact the fact of leaving the European Union is um, sort of such a monstrous mistake for her. Um, and that the 17.4 million people who voted to leave the European Union were just wrong and need to be corrected. Um, and that Jeremy Corbyn taking a strategically ambiguous stance on Brexit um, for several years. So it was basically her saying, uh, you're not doing what I want, politician. I want to go back to Blair where he would say something cool and say, you know, the European Union, um, I, I'm dabbing on the European Union or whatever. Um, and. And and and, she, and it's, he's just not doing it because he doesn't represent her as a political constituency anymore. And so she is also terminally online and constantly posting. Um, and she is, she never stops posting. Uh, I think someone someone needs to stop her from posting, or she's going to give herself more brain parasites. I, mean, I think a lot of these Twitter leftists would see kind of a like you know like a soul connection with her of, of being trapped <laughs> online and, and posting constantly. But it's you look. You'd think so. I mean, look, uh, in a in a war, I mean, two people are fighting constantly. Not that posting is war. Obviously, posting is a complete waste of time. Um, look, as an inveterate poster, I of course enjoy it. But still, um, posting posting is just a fun way to tell jokes with your friends. It's nothing more. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't um, accomplish anything in like ninety nine point nine percent of cases. Indeed. So, but with, with J.K. So with so Rowling, like has Rowling has this really visceral hatred of Jeremy Corbyn. Because he is, to her, she, he's wrong on Brexit, and he is not the kind of easy left for a rich person to support. Um, he is not slick and stylish. He's not cool uh, and all this. And it's the same people um, who look and are, who, it's like Jonathan Chait or whatever, who thinks the sheer sexual magnetism of Bernie Sanders was what excited a lot of young people. <laughs> <laughs> They're, because they can't imagine politics as anything other than choices between individual personalities. It even sort of goes back to the whole Voldemort thing, where it's like, well, if the bad personalities are running the system, it's bad. If the good personalities are running the system, it's good. And so she's like, no, we need the good personalities back. We need the we need the reasonable moderates who are going to look at all the evidence and so on. But then you sort of notice when the moderates start becoming more, um, say, radical who sort of ignore evidence more maybe then all of a sudden well it's the wrong evidence or well we just like it and so on so really i think she's just protecting her material interest but is doing so in a really schlocky and i'm oh, sorry i moved my computer a really schlocky and stupid seeming way um but the, the, there's the other thing i sort of want to hit on as well is sort of go, stepping into the real world a bit um is you you mentioned earlier about so i, I know you were trying to end on this but it's a it is one last point i want to make sure you mentioned earlier um that you say, well, how do these stories end? You know, the, the either the orcs fall away or the magician wonders what he's going to do with his life. But I think if you look at the, you can look at the book as a fictive world in itself, 
or you can look at these stories as products of the culture industry. So how does this story end? It doesn't. This story will never end because it will never stop being profitable to keep producing more spinoffs and sequels and prequels and so on until essentially, just like in Baudrillard, right, um, you can just go watch a year-long Harry Potter movie that comes out every year that they're still <laughs> making. Uh, just ju They're making just in time before the previous one ends. Um, you know, it's... it's the more, because it's... And when it stops being profitable, it will then just end like The Sopranos, just black. It'll end in the middle of the story because this story is not designed to end. It's designed to continue extracting wealth um, from everyone else. My point would be that... Um... Corbin and Rowling have both faced accusations of anti-Semitism, and you think maybe they would uh, be able to, you know, come together over that. Um, the the Corbin ones are confusing to me. The Rowling one is that she um, made the bankers in the Harry Potter world these goblins who are like hook nosed and are like obsessed with wealth and these little like you know creatures that some yeah. could, some say look like anti-Semitic characters. Um, yeah. But okay, yeah. So where yeah where do where do we end? Um, I yeah. It, I, it, they lived happily ever after is like you know the traditional <laughs> ending of a fairy tale and Harry Potter's in many ways a fairy tale. Um, I guess you know uh, there's, you can never live happily ever after under capitalism because uh, you're always your surplus la labor is always being stolen from you. Um, <laughs> so I, yeah, awesome. I, don't know. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, but so your, your cool. point about how well, things, you do anything with surplus labor anyway. <laughs> your point about how the, the our, the culture industry is constantly churning out uh, sequels and prequels and revisions and reboots uh, is certainly like the case, um, the case today. Um, but sometimes it, it leaves a really good art. Like I saw the Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse movie, which is this kind of crazy postmodern meta animated thing where you have the, like uh, the Spider-Man characters from different uh, realities all fighting together and and one of them is like this joke porky pig type character called spider ham that <laughs> that they met in the 70s as a joke and he's in the movie and he like is doing cartoon like okay, things I will watch this. so there's also so yeah so and then this is like you know this movie couldn't have ex existed 10 years ago when there was only one version of spider-man <laughs> now we have like three or four versions of spider-man on the silver screen uh but it still like leaves leads to <laughs> creative production in some cases um Okay, so why don't yeah why don't we end it there? So uh, if people want to follow your work, um, work where, where can they find it? So your, your do you, can you share your Twitter handle as well? Yeah, well you can uh, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Rala. It's R double A L E H, um, and you can find Trash Future, which is Trash Future. Uh, it's all one word. You can find it on any podcasting app you want: Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. If you're a masochist, um, and uh, yeah, we've got. Uh, if you're sort of coming in from America, we did an episode with Felix from Chapo a couple of weeks ago that I think would be a good starter. Cool. Um, he, his audio is a little bit messed up, um, but it's uh, it's not that it's it's not too bad. Um, otherwise, or, or actually, if you also want to talk about um, if you want to learn more about Brexit, because like this, it, it can't be overstated that sort of that, that level of it and labor strategy. You can start with one we did with a think tank director on the left um, who was instrumental in the creation of labor strategy. Um, and so that's uh, about last month. So those are good episodes to start with if you are interested. Cool. Um, well, thank you for coming on and uh, going back and forth with me about your article, which, again, is called Politics. It's not Harry Potter, published in Jacobin. <laughs> um, and thank you to all of our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you again next time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. 
Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.